0: And thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together.
1: Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Religious leaders of all faiths have expressed support for reducing carbon pollution that is heating the sky and hitting the Earth's most vulnerable people. Pope Benedict XVI, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and many others have spoken about the moral imperative of protecting the Earth's beauty and bounty for future generations. Faith-based communities are also taking action by putting solar panels on the roofs of churches and temples, insulating drafty houses of worship, and activating their members. Over the next hour, we'll talk about congregation power with our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We are joined by three religious leaders actively engaged in creation care. Reverend Sally Bingham is founder of Interfaith Power and Light, a national advocacy organization. And R- Rabbi Yonatan Nero, founder and executive director of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development in Jerusalem. And Reverend Donald Eng with the First Chinese Baptist Church here in San Francisco. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, well, faith is a lot about storytelling. So I want to start uh, with your individual stories and, and hear from you how you came to the intersection of faith and environmental stewardship, and then we'll talk about your organizations and other topics. But, uh, Reverend Bingham, let's begin with you. How did you come to this intersection of faith and environmentalism? Well,
0: I'm not sure starting with me is a very good idea. It was a long process. I mean, it well, was this a, is, yeah, not a lifetime f- of experience.
1: <laughs> so you're saying there's a 45-minute answer there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> That's what
0: I'm saying, but briefly, um, I have always been interested in what humans were doing to the planet, whether it was deforestation or dying coral reefs or climate change or um, any number of the things that humans are doing that is destructive to nature. I've been an Episcopalian all of my life, but I never heard anyone talk about saving creation from the pulpit. And I found this really lacking in our religion. We, we pray for a reverence for the earth almost every Sunday. And to me, having a reverence for the earth means you have a reverence for the earth. You treat nature as if it were sacred. And yet we were not doing that. We were not, we were hypocrites in the sense that we, we even denounce any evil that destroys creation in our Christian baptismal vows. So I started asking clergy, why why do you never talk about saving creation? How, how can all these people sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, profess a love for God, be called to love their neighbors, and be polluting their neighbor's air and poisoning the water and putting engine oil in the storm drain behind the house? Where does it go? It goes to your neighbor. And eventually, one of these clergy people who was tired of me asking the question said, why don't you go to seminary and find out where the disconnect is between what you say you believe in and how we behave. Well, I had never been to college, so I couldn't go to seminary. So it was this long process. I I went to the University of San Francisco at 45 years old, entered as as a freshman, got a wonderful Jesuit education, still interested in the environment after four years of college. Still, I never heard a clergy person talk about saving creation from the pulpit. So I went back to Bishop Swing and I said, would you sponsor me to go to seminary now that I have gone to college? And yes, I was. went over to Church Divinity School of the Pacific, went through three years of seminary, in the process, realized that perhaps this was a true call from God to be the one that gets into the pulpit and and <laughs> hammers hellfire and damnation away at the people in the pews if they were not going to be the good stewards of creation that we are called to be. One thing led to another, and I was ordained in 1997, and now this is my life work. It's what I've dedicated my ministry to you and what I do,
1: and we'll learn more about your organization uh, shortly, uh, Reverend Eng. Tell us how you came to the intersection of faith and and uh, and stewardship.
2: Well, in a very similar way, um, a commitment of this kind uh, takes time. It's a it's a lifelong journey. Uh, growing up in Boston, I uh, knew that uh, there were all these public signs that says, "Do not litter." Uh, you know, you uh, pack up your own debris or your trash when you're hiking or here in San Francisco, as uh, Sally mentioned, uh, uh, things that you drop or you leak onto the street will eventually pollute the bay. Um, and so for me, uh, personal action is very important to my own commitment. And as I learned that what I do uh, as an individual can affect uh, others, and especially my neighbors and the larger community, uh, then it becomes a issue of uh, conscience uh, that what I do will affect everyone else's uh, livelihood as well as their health. Uh, as an American Baptist, uh, you know, Baptists are always known to be evangelistic, that we uh, concern about the uh, salvation of the individual. But our denomination, the American Baptist, also has a commitment uh, what we call eco-justice, that uh, you can't win just a person's soul without also caring for the uh, justice that, happens, that needs to happen in our society as well as in our natural uh, world. And so I grew up with that kind of background in my own uh, childhood and during my youth years, and, and when I was called to be a minister, I, I saw that as part of my uh, also prophetic voice.
1: And Rabbi Nero, uh you had some formative experiences at Camp Tawanga and, and Yosemite and others. So tell us how you came to uh,
3: faith and stewardship. So I grew up uh, here in the Bay Area on an acre of land, which uh, I gardened with my mother. We had an organic garden and a big orchard of fruit trees. And uh, every summer I would go to Camp Tawanga, a Jewish summer camp near Yosemite, where I it, it was exposed for the first time to uh, the connection between Jewish teachings and the environment, in this case in one of the most beautiful places in the world. I then uh, studied uh, in a BA and MA program at Stanford with a focus on global environmental issues, and during that time did research in India and Mexico and Cuba on environmental issues. And I came to Israel about 10 years ago and studied in... Uh, uh, rabbinic program where I encountered Jewish texts from this particular lens and realized that, uh, the Jewish tradition has very profound things to say about environmental sustainability. And out of, the, out of this experience, I, I founded the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, which is based in Jerusalem and works to, uh, promote, uh, environmental sustainability based on faith teachings.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the scripture uh, and then we'll get into sort of the congregations and solar panels on the roof and that sort of thing. So if someone comes to you and says, uh, well, you know, where do you find in scripture the, the, the origin or what's your favorite passage to cite uh, in, in your respective teachings that sort of points to the obligation mm-hmm. for, for stewardship? Rabbi, what would you, in the First Testament or, or others, what would you point to?
3: Well, there, I would point to... When in Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, God blesses people to be fruitful fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and dominate the fish of the sea and the birds and the animals, ironically, according to Jewish tradition, that verse is actually a profound instruction for stewardship. The the Midrash, part of the, the Jewish oral tradition, teaches that we are only given dominion over creation if we act righteously. If we do not act righteously, then the opposite happens: that human beings are ruled by animals, and that that th- these verses about um, our being sort of at the top of the uh, of the hierarchy in creation means that we have a particular responsibility to to treat it with respect and to care for it. Reverend
0: Bingham, well, I think that. All of that is correct and I often use dominion, not dominate. I mean I always try to differentiate between dominate and dominion and I, and I, I very often tell people that the dominion that we're given over the earth is the same dominion that God has over us, which is to help us be the best we can be, to care for, and we have dominion over our children and we don't, break our children's arms or ribs we help them be the best they can be and that's the dominion that God gave us but the one that I use the most if someone said you can come up with one bit of scripture to support an environmental ethic I use what I mentioned early on the first commandment is to love God the second is like unto it which is to love your neighbor as yourself well, if you love your neighbor, you don't put engine oil in the storm drain behind your house. It goes to your neighbor. And then it goes to the bay and then to the fish. And who eats the fish? We do. And that points out the interconnectedness of all mm-hmm. things. But I use that. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of phrases in Scripture that one can use. But I think that is probably mm-hmm. the simplest. And it's also the one that most people have heard.
2: Mm-hmm. River well, for me, um, I have always uh, referred back to Psalm uh, chapter 8. Uh, Psalm 8 says that uh, our Lord is uh, majestic in his name. And it goes on to say that um, God created the whole world with his fingers. and um, But then the psalmist questions why God would care for human beings, why God would be thinking about human beings and it says that uh, we are created a uh, little lower than uh, God. Uh, in some versions, it says that we are divine beings and we are created like angels. And that uh, because we are co creators with God, partners with God, we are then uh, responsible for all the things that God has created, including the the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air as well as the fish uh, in the sea. Um, and as Sally says, uh, dominion does not mean uh, violence to nature or, or domination or just total consumerism, but rather being good stewards. And as I was reading that passage over again, I, I found even a new insight. It says that uh, when human beings are responsible for the uh, fish in the sea, and then it says wherever else is in the sea. And uh, we know that as uh, uh, people who are concerned for the planet Earth, that one of the areas that is so uh, uncharted and yet to be discovered are all the living creatures that are in the sea. So even the psalmist uh, many, many thousands of years ago uh, was already envisioning the fact that as caregivers of the earth, as uh, good, responsible stewards of the earth, that we still have some wonderful living creatures in the seeds that uh, we can uh, yet to discover as well as to uh, uh, care for. And so that's what defines for me uh, this whole responsibility that we are not just consumers, that we're not at the end of the food chain. Rather, we are with God at the beginning of the food chain, making sure that everything else are available for future generations.
1: And the oceans are one thing that climate scientists are very concerned about, the acidification, the, uh, the plankton, et And so, But there's often a perceived conflict between faith and science. So let's talk about that. Is it possible to have this faith and, and accept this science? So who would like to... I want all of us to get in on this in terms of the the rub or the the alignment of faith and science. Sally Bingham.
0: Well, I I can um, shed a little light on that at least in terms of the work that we do. Our Interfaith Power and Light program is focused on a religious response to global warming. Now, as a as a priest and not a scientist, if I'm going to start talking about what humans are doing to the planet in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and start talking about parts per million in the atmosphere, I need scientific backing. I need to be in very close communication with the scientific community, or I have no business making those kinds of remarks or asking people to drive smaller cars unless I'm well-versed on what. Uh, miles per gallon automobiles are getting and so i always say that religion would not have a prayer without science and i believe that our in our organization we do work with scientists and we stay as closely in contact with the facts and what the science people what the scientists are saying about climate change is what we then put into religious language and tell to our congregants and our uh, constituencies.
1: But Donnie, if some people accept science on climate change, then they might need to accept science on evolution and, they don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. So explain how people wrestle with that potential. Can they accept some of the science or do they reject all science because of where it might lead
0: them?
2: I would say that some of the best scientists are Christians or religious leaders themselves. Uh, I have always understood that religion and science do not have a conflict, uh, but rather uh, scientists uh, are partners with uh, all of humankind to understand the beautiful world that God has created in the first place. I think when science and religion uh, end up uh, being in conflict it's when religious leaders begin to read scripture in a very literal fashion. And... Uh, i prefer that, that to say that uh, uh our holy scriptures are written uh totally completely inspired by god but not necessarily to be understood from a literal standpoint and uh i know that even some people in my own uh church may disagree with me on this but um, to believe that uh genesis 1 is exactly the way we in the 21st century, read it as as to be. Uh, for example, 24-hour days, I think, is uh, somewhat uh, uh, naive. And so uh, I believe that science and scientists have helped us to see how our world has come to be and that there should be a constant dialogue between the scientists and the religious leaders so that we can understand how... Uh, discoveries can inform each other. So I, I don't see a conflict uh, that you refer to, Greg, but uh, I do know that there are many in our religious communities that would.
1: So you don't, but some do. So, But Sally Bingham, some evangelicals will say that the uh, yeah, just the notion that individuals can change God's creation, that's a, that's a troubling concept.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually told once by an evangelical who teaches Sunday school in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that what we were up against when we were talking about climate change to the very conservative uh, right-wing evangelical community that they teach in Sunday school that you as a child will hear about science but understand that the world really was created in the seven days that Scripture says so because they take Scripture literally Mm -hmm. and... Listen and be respectful, but the word of God is what's in scripture, and that's what you should believe. So what this fellow was telling me is that if we push science on this very conservative, which is a small community of people, it's, it's a loud voice, but it's not as, as huge a group as one might imagine, but that if we were to push science of climate change, onto this community and they were starting to accept it that their entire theology might unravel because they would have to accept they, they can't just take science in segments. They've, they're either going to accept science or not. Mm-hmm. And may I just say one other thing sure. too for the, for the benefit of people who are struggling with how to understand scripture, I, I like the way you described on the um, it, it, it's kind of a story scripture mm-hmm. is a story or metaphor for how we may, might live our life but mm-hmm. not to be taken literally mm-hmm. when I was in seminary and we were having this conversation our professor said you remember as a child playing telephone and you would somebody would whisper something to the person next to them the book of Genesis is oral history. Mm-hmm. And if you say something to me and I say it to to you and you say it to Greg, by the time Greg gets it, it's a little different than what it started out here. And that's what our oral history and that's where the whole Old Testament came from. And the new one also, these were all oral history. These are all stories that people told and then how they got written down. Inspired by God, Mm -hmm. but not literally written by God.
2: And and most of the time, religious uh, communities, those who are in a minority and very conservative in their outlook, would uh, just take that issue of creation, for example, and make it into a huge controversy. And they forget whether you're on the conservative end or the liberal end we all forget, then, the, the main point of the whole chapter, chapter 1 as well as chapter 2, and that is that God created the world, and that we are to live in harmony with each other, caring for each other, not just as human beings, but for all of God's creations, uh, both those who walk with four legs as well as the uh, nature, uh, the physical environment in which God has created and if uh, if people from all extremes, if you want to say, can come together and realize and still give praise and glory to God for God's cre- mighty creation, I think we would be in a much better place than to be stuck, if you want to say, on these, in my opinion, uh, uh, more uh, tr- trite issues. Yeah.
1: You're just joining us, our guests today at Climate One are Reverend Donald Eng from the First Chinese Baptist Church in San Francisco, Rabbi Jonathan Nero uh, from the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development in Jerusalem, and Reverend Sally Bingham, founder of Interfaith Power and Light. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about some of the interfaith work that's happened around creation care and, and climate change. A lot of the religious community around the world has come together to say we're jointly concerned about stewardship. We come from different traditions, but we have this similar uh, concern. So Jonathan Nara, let's ask you. I'd like to ask you about some of the work you're doing mm-hmm. in Jerusalem with people from mm-hmm. different faiths and, and teaching them about stewardship. Mm-hmm.
3: Great. So I'll mention uh, a few projects. First, we hold an annual interfaith environmental conference in Jerusalem, which brings together uh, religious leaders based in the Holy Land's together with uh, world religious leaders via video addresses. Um, and uh, each we capitalize on the high concentration of religious leaders living in the Holy Land together with the high concentration of foreign media based in Jerusalem, perhaps more than any other city in the world. And we invite the general population and the journalists to uh, witness how uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim religious leaders are coming together on the issue of environmental sustainability. We have a second project that works with seminary students, uh, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish seminary students who are studying to be rabbis, priests, and imams. And we do uh, bi-monthly seminars with them on topics of faith and ecology at the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and looking at issues of climate change and water in the Holy Land. And then we have a third project called the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative which brings together leading scientists along with uh, leading uh, religious leaders like uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and um, and really tries to bring faith and science together and to show that there's not a conflict, um, especially when the leaders of world religions are, are being vocal about the need to to protect the earth.
1: And we'll get to the others first, but I want you to comment a little bit about sort of an Islamic uh uh, environmentalism, because mm-hmm. we don't have an Islamic voice up here, mm-hmm. but there is a video on your website that mm-hmm. speaks to that. So, just tell us a little bit about how they approach that.
3: Okay, great. And actually, there's, since you mentioned, we have a video collection on our website of about 40 videos of faith leaders speaking about ecology mm-hmm. from many faith traditions, um, including Buddhist and Hindu and Native American. Uh, so, and and so in, at our conferences, we've had uh, imams and sheikhs speak about. Islam and ecology, and uh, talk about the Khalifa, which is which means stewardship in Arabic, and um, the basis in the Quran um, for many environmental teachings, and the importance of uh, of conscious consumption during Ramadan, and um, and other environmental practices.
1: Great. And, uh, Sally Bingham, you've been a pioneer in interfaith uh, work around stewardship and climate change. So tell us a little bit about some of the recent things you've done to bring interfaith leaders together around uh, climate change. There was a lot happening in, around Copenhagen in 2009. What's going to happen lately? Well,
0: one of the most interesting things about the work we're doing, we, we started out as a religious response to global warming. And it, it was really an unintended consequence to have – Jews, Muslims, Christians, Baha'is, Buddhists, and all these different denominations sitting around the same table saying, we agree, we are the stewards of creation. I don't work, I wouldn't say that my work is interfaith collaboration, but that's what's happened. And that's what's very exciting, because you have these different denominations agreeing on something when they are often at odds with one another, so this has been a very unifying subject to be working in.
1: And I believe you, a number of people wrote to the U.S. Senate, and what three or four years ago, you got a bunch of people that came together. Was that when there was actual live policy in, the, in uh, Washington D.C.? Am well, I remembering co- correctly?
0: Well, we had a religious leaders climate summit right here in San Francisco right. in 2006, Okay. and we had um, the head of the board of rabbis. We had. An imam from Washington who is the, um, he runs the North American Islamic Society. We had the presiding bishop from the Episcopal Church. We had um, Joel Hunter, a wonderful evangelical pastor from Orlando, Florida. There were 15 heads of denominations who came to San Francisco, listened to Stephen Schneider, who is one of our, um, unfortunately deceased, but climate heroes from the scientific world.
1: And a teacher that uh, Jonathan studied under.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, Stephen gave a three-hour presentation to these religious leaders. And then we created a document, signed it, and sent it to Washington.
1: Okay. And is that voice being heard now?
0: Oh, I believe so. I mean, we we have an annual conference. The Interfaith Power and Light folks get together every year in Washington and go to the Hill. And we've done it enough times now. It's been ten years that when we're walking the aisles in the uh, in the Senate building, people will say, "Here come the interfaith power and light people." Right. And we're also very well received when we go in to visit our legislators because they will say, "We're the lung people come, the environmentalists come, the um, people for advocating for children's rights come to visit us." But we've never had anyone from the religious community and they they're very receptive to our messages because we're not coming from anything other than a deeply rooted in theology perspective and they like that you know they're 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 willing to listen to us about moral responsibility and that's the voice that religion brings to this dialogue
1: even politically conservative, climate-denying politicians? Do you, do you go only see the friendly politicians, or do you see the ones who are more skeptical?
0: It's a great deal more fun to go and visit the more skeptical ones. <laughs> and we do visit them, and they do see us.
1: Do they change their votes or change their opinion?
0: Um, it, I... I have to say I hope so, but I – I mean, many of these folks have changed their opinions. I mean, they've gone from actually being um, climate skeptics to being advocates for climate protection, but they've also gone the other way. I mean, one of our very well-known political parties has had several people who were climate protection advocates who in the last six or eight months before the election switched to the other side and, um, I don't think we, as religious leaders, at least at Interfaith Power and Light Campaign, can take responsibility for either one of those changes. But I do think we raise awareness, and I think talking about moral responsibility, it, it catches people.
1: Uh, Reverend I want to get you in here. Do uh, Baptists get involved in the policy and po- politics, or do you stick to uh, other realms? <laughs> uh,
2: I wish more Baptists get involved in politics. Uh if not collectively, at least uh, individually, uh, but I think we do. Um, Our church uh, is located right in San Francisco, Chinatown. And uh, we've done a number of things that uh, we believe uh, have helped our community and our world to be greener. And so I think uh, as a local church pastor, my responsibility is to help a congregation become a model church, so that other churches can also learn from us. Um, a few years ago, we installed uh, uh, solar panels on the top of our church roof, rooftop, and uh, we've gone to our local ecumenical council and have actually said, uh, come and learn from us. And since then, we've had uh, two or three uh, churches uh, who brought their uh, governing board to see what our church has done. And so we feel that as a ch- local church in a neighborhood, our responsibility is to influence others that they could also do it. Um, and so and you're not
1: paying any electricity bills now, right?
2: What we we used to have a PG&E bill uh, somewhere between $500 and $600 a month. Uh, we've been paying less than $100 now, and that's just for natural gas so that we could cook breakfast on Sunday mornings. And... Um, one of the things that we uh, did, which I'll, I'll just take a few minutes, when we installed the solar panels, um, we worked with, uh, a uh, obviously, a company that installed the panels. But part of the agreement that we made was that we wanted to have a uh, website, and it's called Sunny Portal with SMA. And so when people come to our church website, they could actually... Uh, click a link, and it'll go to this uh, Sunny Portal website, and on an hourly basis, you can see uh, how much uh, energy we are creating, how much CO2 emission we are avoiding, and how much money we're actually earning because we are now contributing electricity back into the grid. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by doing that, we hope that more and more faith communities would uh, see that uh, solar panels and solar energy is achievable and the savings that we have made, uh, these resources can go into other forms of ministry. Mm-hmm. And so
1: but when you were raising funds, and that, that solar program started from with a bequest by one of your members, and yes. you raised money for it, were you concerned that raising money for solar panels might take away from ministry funds?
2: Um, I I've always operated with the understanding that when we are doing the morally right thing uh God will bless us uh beyond our imagination. And uh so I I believe that as a community we know that that was the right thing to do. And if it uh we're going to generate less money for our annual budget uh uh, we will deal with that but actually it's just the opposite
1: you're saving money yeah.
2: we're not only saving money but we know that when we are doing the morally right thing uh, people gravitate they get excited about what what we're doing and they want to join us and so every time we've taken this leap of faith to do something that is according to what we believe is god's calling we have been blessed in uh, in a in a, in, a, in many many uh more waste.
1: but Sally Bingham. Not every congregation is that way. Some people, some do worry about raising money for that clean energy project. Will take away from programmatic funds.
0: It's true, and 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 I think that they. It's a it's a fair thing to worry about. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think it's more um, what Don is saying. I think that if you have solar on your roof. It enhances your building, which helps your parishioners understand your congregation is doing the right and moral thing, will bring more people into your congregation and make it even easier to raise. Well, one thing you're doing with the solar on the roof is you're saving money that can go back out into your other ministries. And and often it just has to be proven. You know, someone has to make that step and take the risk. And I wanted to say one thing, though, that you may not um, realize that you are involved in politics because I'm a big believer that people vote their values, and we always encourage them to do that on our website. But if your parishioners are understanding that not only is your church Mm -hmm. saving money, but you're doing the moral right thing by having solar on your roof, won't they then want to have solar on their roofs in their homes? And then won't they say, maybe we should be electing officials mm-hmm. who like um, – who are in favor of tax credits right. for solar, and eventually we can have a whole uh, renewable energy – um constituency that comes right out of the faith community because the church served as an example to the community. Yes.
2: You see, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, we, have, we actually have uh, two homes now that also have installed solar panels in their homes because they see that the church can do it. You see, uh, stemming from the Psalm 8 passage that I referred to earlier, if we are truly created a little bit lower than God, or divine beings, or angels. We have in our own being the understanding of what is right and wrong. But quite often, when we are by ourselves, we default, if you want to say, back to our less divine sides. It's like when the cat is out, the mice play, right? But when people belong to a faith community, we hold each other accountable. Um, we could preach all we want to individuals and say, you know, you need to get solar panels, you need to recycle, you need to do all kinds of green things. But when we are doing this together as a church, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we then model for each other. We hold each other accountable. Saying, what are, you, what are you doing at home and what are you doing in your workplaces? And so what, so the church itself, or at least I hope all churches, are modeling a lifestyle, a life commitment that is better or more morally correct than what each person can do individually. And so, whether on a weekly basis or on a regular basis, when people do come to a faith community, they kind of get recharged. They learn once again what is morally right so that in the other six days of the week, they can do the right thing, you see.
1: And so you believe that individual action matters because a lot of people say, well, you know, if I cut my carbon to zero or even if everyone in the United States cut their carbon to zero, the world would still have a problem. So what I do is insignificant. And you're saying that that individual does matter.
2: Because I, I, I do believe that the accumulation of our efforts do matter but I think ultimately uh, as a religious person, a leader what I do in regards to my own conscience matters first. Everyone has to live with himself or herself and to say that uh, we've made a difference it, one by one I do have a hope and a belief that uh, all things will be made new there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth and that's what we have faith in
1: and you became a vegetarian also as, partly, as part oh, of yes. the process
2: <laughs> I became a vegetarian because of what I just mentioned about uh, the discovery of God's world and that uh, if I uh, are going to uh talk about this uh, uh, from the pulpit, I have to be uh, conscientious about what I do as an individual. And therefore, uh, being a vegetarian means that I would not cause violence to God's creation, including uh, what is necessary to sustain my life and my lifestyle. And uh, I too have converted a number of people to becoming vegetarian. And once I started talking about why I am a vegetarian based on conviction, and that's important. It's not because of dietary or or even the love of animals, but basically from a scriptural standpoint, uh, I can't see why, uh, I'll say this, Christians should remain, uh, I mean, they, they should all become vegetarians. That's my, my crusade right now, so... <laughs> But thank you for introducing that, Greg. <laughs>
1: uh, if you're just joining us, our, our guests today are line, Reverend Donald Eng from the First Chinese Baptist Church in San Francisco, Rabbi Jonathan Nero, uh from the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development in Jerusalem, and Reverend Sally Bingham, founder of Interfaith Power in, and and Light. Uh, sometimes with individual action, people can buy a Prius, become a vegetarian, and think, start recycling, and think, I'm good. Okay, I'm doing my part, and then not go any further. If they have addressed their conscience, they can respond to their children or or at a cocktail party, yeah, I'm good. And then don't go any further. So I'd like to talk about how we can continue people on this path of uh, continual improvement, enlightenment, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You want to talk?
3: Well, so I would say that my organization has a branch called uh, Jewish Eco Seminars, and we have on our website uh, Jewish Environmental Teachings on. Uh, 18 specific topics as well as uh, teachings according to the weekly Torah portion um, that really try to bring it from the th- theology to practical action. <clears throat> but I would also say that uh, the environmental crisis is, is not a crisis of the environment per se. It's not a problem of the rainforests or the the bees and the birds, the trees and the toads. The environmental crisis is actually a spiritual crisis, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> meaning it's a it's a crisis of how we live as spiritual beings in a material reality. Consequently, a lot of the changes that I believe that religions can be um, most effective and encouraging is uh, our spiritual changes. Mm-hmm. That it's not only at the level of what type of car do I drive or do I drive a car or what type of food do I eat and where does it come from, etc., uh, <clears throat> I believe that a, a lot of the imbalances that we're seeing in the global environment are actually stemming from imbalances that are occurring at the individual level within billions of human beings. And so, uh, like Reverend Ng is saying, the, uh, the, the correcting and uh, our returning to balance within ourselves and our finding... Uh, spiritual contentment as the, the greatest source of our pleasure and and, and weaning ourselves away from uh, finding our greatest pleasure in material uh, satisfaction that that shift that reorientation is is a tremendous environmental act even if it even if at that moment nothing changed in terms of how I consume things but something changed inside and as a result the whole rudder of the ship, Change and then the direction itself will change.
0: River I think that is so right on. Um, It's almost as if, and I think, Greg, you had this experience yourself when you went off to find out, is the climate problem really real? And you have a sort of epiphany. There comes a time when you shift internally about the way you're living. So you wouldn't stop with just getting a Prius. Because it's if it really is a shift, that you realize I matter. I matter to God. I matter to my neighbors. And every single one of my behaviors matters. Whether it's the coffee I drink, the clothes I wear, the car I drive, the energy I use, the food I eat, all of these things matter. And then your thinking, your spirituality, your values who you are as a person, go through a shift to where it's almost unconscious and you're not throwing trash out the window or or driving your car unnecessarily because you have this sense that everything I do matters. Right. I matter and my behavior matters. And I think that the person who buys a Prius and says, okay, done, That's not the spiritual renewal that you're talking about or that you're Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, When someone has that epiphany and recognizes we have to change the way we are in the world as humans and stop thinking of ourselves um, as dominators of nature, then your whole behavior, your whole being shifts. And the way you are as a person in the world shifts.
1: But you're about that's all good, and that's very interesting. But you're also about to switch from a a small gas-powered car to an electric car. I want to make sure we we mention that. So you're continuing to that internal as well as the thing. Because some people, the spiritual realm is accessible to some people, and some people still operate on a material level where things that are concrete and specific, it's easier for them to grasp onto as a place to as a place to start. Mm -hmm. So Sally, I want to hear about your new electric car.
0: Well, I don't have it yet, but I'm on the list. What's it going to (laughs) be? No, I have a um, Smart for Two car, but they're going to be um, out in the market to get an all-electric Smart for Two car starting in January. And I'm just taking one step further to get off gasoline.
1: Excellent. Uh, Before we're going to get to our audience questions here, I want to ask uh, about forgiveness. Uh, We had a scientist here recently, Dr. James Hansen, who talked in very strong terms about people in the oil industry who, uh, and, and fossil fuel industry, who knowingly extract and per, uh, fossil fuels and burn them in a way that they know can be harmful. And I want to know how you think about forgiveness for people who are continuing in this fossil fuel model. Uh, with the science these days, it's pretty clear what the consequences for their children and all of us are. So, Yonatan, mm-hmm. you know, forgiveness and fossil fuels.
3: Well, I, I think that the, the creator of the world will, will hold, that, that there is a, a level of uh, responsibility that we need to take um, in regards to, to our creator, uh, regarding every pound of carbon that we put into the atmosphere, especially when for 40 years scientists have been saying that that behavior is, is one that's not sustainable for, for this planet and, and human society um and so it's also important to have compassion and and to realize that uh that each one of us is embedded within mm-hmm. a carbon culture and within industrial and post-industrial society and and virtually everything we do in some way whether it's drinking a cup of water that's been pumped using an electric pump or Et cetera. Virtually everything we do has a carbon footprint, has an ecological footprint, and and so um, I would, for me, uh, there's a teaching of, of Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlav, a, a Hasidic rabbi, who says that we need to remember that we're going to cross a very narrow bridge, but the important thing is not to make ourselves afraid, and that that in our generation we are facing very daunting challenges. And very, um, very, sig- we have very significant challenges and opportunities ahead. Um, the important thing is not to be afraid and not to be judgmental toward other people, um, but at the same time to, to remain true to our convictions that uh, that, that we can access our um, millennia-old religious traditions to promote the betterment of humanity. Uh, the greatest renewable energy available on this planet is spiritual energy. And I believe that the Creator calls on us to access and to harness that energy for the betterment
2: of humanity.
1: Reverend Bingham or Reverend Ng?
2: Well, I, I'll uh, respond just briefly. Uh, I mean, we live in such a uh, polarized world, and certainly uh, very conflictual, e- even in the in the U.S. and um, You know, there'll there'll be a time when uh, we hope, as all religious communities do hope, that there is peace and harmony in the world. But until that time comes, we as uh, human beings uh, need to always reach out to reconcile the broken relationships that we have. And unless we can uh, show forgiveness and understanding and uh, bring people together to... uh, Work on, uh, legislation that would make a difference. Build lives that will, uh, model for others and future generations that these are good behaviors that we can all learn from and so that, you know, uh, the global warming can be at least, uh, held at bay. All these kinds of efforts are worthwhile, but it won't happen unless there is reconciliation. And so forgiveness is a part of that process of working together. Uh, across all kinds of uh, tribal groups. Yeah.
1: Let's go to our audience question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. I'm pleased that you're all on board with climate change. Uh, I learned about climate change in 1960 in an ecology class at UC Davis. Uh, it's been 53 years since I've heard um, people of the faith-based community open and I'm a little concerned about the southeastern United States. And we're living in a bubble here, so it's easy to talk with a faith-based community about climate change. How are we going to talk to the southeastern United States and get them on board so that we can move this country forward? And that group is holding us back with all the strength that they have. We'd like to take tackle that one, how to communicate with people who are... Skeptics, time? Yeah, I would, I,
3: My organization is reaching out to uh, uh, several uh, evangelical programs that are based in Jerusalem to try to reach their students who are studying. Some of them are studying to be um, to be clergy, and to try to engage them on ecology in the Holy Land. So that's that's one way that we're trying to do it. Uh, we're also, uh, as I mentioned, we have um, th- this video collection as well as. Um, as as short videos of, of world religious leaders speaking out on ecology, the Dalai Lama, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Patriarch Bartholomew, others, um, and and we're also aiming to have evangelical leaders involved, our hope is that um, as more and more people see that the uh sort of the, the the body of world religious leaders are are speaking out on this issue, along with scientists, that it will be hard to deny that, that there's something very real about it. But part of what you said is
1: you're talking with the the next generation. And there's some people who say, look, in in any industry, whether it's business or faith community, that the baby boomers, certain generations, aren't going to change a whole lot. That this, go younger, it's going to be a generational change. Reverend Bingham, Bingham, I'd like to get you in on that, too, in terms of talking to people, evangelicals in the Southeast. Well,
0: and I don't think it's quite as dire as um, the question, the fellow gentleman who asked the question Um, We do work. Did you say the southern United States? Southeastern United States. Southeastern United States. States. We we have programs there. We have a very robust program in Georgia and in in North Carolina. And they're making um, wonderful headway by religious leaders talking about these issues from the pulpit. And what we're trying in some cases to do is begin with what we have in common. I mean, everybody wants clean air. We want a healthy environment for our children. And if we start there and start talking about how are we going to have clean air and a healthy environment for our children, well, we're going to have to switch over to renewable energies. And people are beginning to realize that. And if we have any more major super storms like Sandy, which has done an amazing amount to raise consciousness about how climate change is actually affecting the weather as well, I, I mean, I'm a big believer in the human spirit and the fact that uh, once enough people recognize this is a problem, we will make the changes we need to make. And, and I think this individual behavior matters. I have to go back to one quick thing, though. Sure. Does one offer forgiveness to the fossil fuel industry before the fossil fuel industry asks for forgiveness? In other words, um, I think they're committing crimes against humanity if they're doing what they're doing, knowing that they're doing it. But I haven't heard a fossil fuel industry ask anyone for forgiveness. And I, I'm wondering where...
1: Well, it, we, we you could blame the companies, but we ultimately are burning it. We're, we're consuming that product, so are we committing crimes against humanity or just the companies that sell it to us?
3: Well, well so I would actually mention that... That's one of the incredible things, which which is related to uh, in a in a teaching about the generation of Noah, because that was the that was when the when the whole world was destroyed except for everyone on Noah's ark. So there's a, a Jewish teaching that everyone in the society would go to the market and steal one peanut, and because it was such an inconsequential act, no one could be tried and the whole society collapsed and for that the world was destroyed. Now, in our times, does anybody desire that there be climate change? Does anyone want the rainforest to be destroyed? Does anyone desire any global environmental issue? Of course not. But at the level of the individual, each one of us contributes a little bit. Right. A little bit here, a little bit there. And, that, and that that's why I think that ultimately, I mean, there is some there is things going on in the fossil fuel industry, but ultimately what's driving this is, is not the fossil fuel industry, it's the it's the material desire of the human being which has been spread to billions of people
0: consumers
3: yeah.
1: let's uh, let's get our next audience question yes welcome to climate one
0: thank you um, you've all been very inspiring and thought-provoking this morning afternoon um, I come from a church in the near the Central Valley and we're about to embark on a, a change in our our building on chairing a study committee and I'm about to present some recommendations and I'm just wondering I'd love to incorporate some earth friendly ideas is there a a place where I could go and get some information for ideas and and maybe even equally importantly is there any financial assistance available throughout the um, religious community for older churches who want to retrofit and become more environmentally conscientious? Well, I hope that you will go immediately to California Interfaith Power and Light. And there are people here today who can give you lots of information on energy efficiency, green building. Um, I also spotted an architect out there who knows an awful lot about uh, green buildings. And in terms of financing, I think there are ways to find financial help, but most often – a congregation has to see the advantages of long-term thinking. And when you change out your light bulbs to compact fluorescence and you see um, a, your energy bill go down a little bit, save that money and put it into something else. And then your, your savings begin to grow to where you can actually make the changes. And sometimes you have to spend money in order to save money. But there are lots of people here that can help you, and I'm sure... As soon as this is over, you'll be hearing from them.
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, Right, that shouldn't have to reinvent that wheel. Lots of churches have already been down that path. Hi, welcome to Climate One.
2: Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for all of this discussion. It's been very um, interesting to me. I live in the material world, not necessarily in in your world. But I was wondering, um, you know, Bill McKibben uh, has recently been in town where he's discussing uh, a, an approach to, to get people and organizations to divest from the fossil fuel industry. And um, uh, at the university level, perhaps at the, um, you know, other levels. Um, so I wondered if you had an opinion about this and whether you thought that your congregations could um, provide some impetus behind this.
1: It's an area we haven't we have touched on. It's where congregations invest their money using that financial leverage as, as a tool against the fossil fuel interests. Uh, Reverend Bingham? Well,
0: well, I think that it's a, it's a very good idea. That it certainly worked during the apartheid time. Mm-hmm. And um, I know when the Episcopal Church has a, um, a committee on social, socially responsible investments, um, it's not and so so there are denominations who are looking at that and I we know and work with Bill McKibben on a, and collaborate on a lot of his initiatives which are I think quite um, beneficial and he also is one of the heroes in terms of raising awareness with young people about the climate issue. It's not something we are involved in particularly we have so many different programs and we're trying to work at the grassroots level to do, what uh, Reverend Ning is doing in getting congregants and people involved in in a whole movement um, to get Americans to understand that this is an enormous problem. Um, we have not gotten involved in divesting. I think it's a good initiative, and I hope it works, and I would support Bill McKibben in doing it. Congregations themselves don't usually have enough money that they have investments Anyway, the denominational heads do. I mean, the Catholic Church does, the Episcopal Church does. Individual congregations don't have um, managing uh, financial portfolios that I know of. Encourage your congregants to do it. Mm.
2: Yes. Uh, Reverend, in a similar way, the American Baptist Churches uh, in the USA is uh, about 5,300 churches across the country including Puerto Rico, and we do have national policies and guidelines about responsible investing. And we're very clear about uh, certain kinds of uh, companies and corporations that we stay away from, and then others that we uh, are very free and more openly uh, involved in, in order to help them accomplish their mission. And so that is reviewed uh, by our denominational leaders on a regular
4: basis.
1: That's our next question. Yes, welcome.
4: Thank you. Um, going back to that first question, um, uh, I fear that the not with spec- uh, notwithstanding Sally's thinking that the numbers are small, but the climate deniers and skeptics are pretty large. And in fact, um, from what I've read, there are millions, perhaps, of folks uh, in the religious communities, especially Christian and Muslims, that believe in this apocalyptical deep belief, like an uh, end times, the rapture, or whatever that um, the Lord is going to come down and and take all the believers to a better place, uh, leaving the rest of us. And uh, I'm just wondering if you've engaged such folks and and how, if any, arguments might be made uh, towards them. And then a quick second question, whether your denominations are uh, getting behind at all a a carbon fee as a potential um, resolution of the climate uh, disruption issue.
1: So, the rapture, we'd like to tackle that one.
2: <laughs> Why are you looking at me? Because, <laughs> Well, uh, certainly, uh, as the uh, guests uh, mentioned, uh, we do have uh, Baptist churches that believe in the uh, end-time uh, theology. And with that perspective, they take the physical world as... Uh, Perhaps secondary and not as important, and that everything will kind of work themselves out at the end uh, times when Christ returns. Uh, obviously, I don't share that theology. Uh, that if, uh, if 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 time does come to an end, uh, it's certainly not going to be the way it's been portrayed by uh, TV in movies. Um, I I, I guess. Um, I would come at that question from uh, this point of view. Uh, I I often say in our church there is no such thing as an undisciplined disciple. That the word disciple means that you are a disciplined person. You have to live a faith that is, uh, you know, you have to uh, walk your talk. And um, if... If God is the one who is the uh, creator of all things on earth, then uh, uh God provided provision for us and therefore we must provide provision for uh future generations until that day comes. And that quality of life is not uh, uh just uh, for our own generation's sake, uh but uh if uh, if that time does come, we hope that there'll be many more generations of quality life on Earth uh, that could be available. And so uh, for those who claim that they could predict the time when that all happens, uh, I, I think they just, uh, um, it's their figment of their imagination, I believe. And, and so as long as I'm living and I'm using uh, a fossil fuels, as we mentioned, I need to be as responsible as I can uh, for the future. Um, so I I I I don't know uh I mean when you argue with people like that there's no uh solution. I mean they'll hold to their beliefs uh but I hope that others uh can see that that is not the answer is to uh think that the end doesn't come. Reverend Bingham, then we're going to get to uh, try to wrap up here. We
1: got just a couple minutes left.
0: Just very quickly. We have a great many friends in the evangelical community and um, Richard Sizek, who some of you may know that name has said that anyone who thinks that it's okay to destroy creation to bring Jesus back yeah. is really committing blasphemy and that there is absolutely nothing in Scripture that supports destruction of creation to bring to, for the rapture. And, and that is, as he said, who is one of them, I mean, he doesn't believe that theology, but he does come out of the evangelical community. He said that um, that is a very loud... But small minority mm-hmm. voice in this country. And I travel all over the country. No one has ever approached me and said, um, We're supposed to wreck the earth and bring Jesus back.
1: Let's have our next question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Yeah. Elaborating on your comment about Noah's ark, <clears throat> there was a time when uh, God almost destroyed mankind. And that raises the question
2: whether the A, whether that could happen again, and B, if the whole issue of what's happening with climate change isn't God's way of saying to man, look, I don't have to do it again. You're doing it yourself.
3: Right, so the, the, the symbol that, uh, that God gives after uh, the almost complete destruction of terrestrial life is the rainbow. That is the symbol of the covenant between God and people, between God and the earth. So the Nachmanides uh, writing in medieval Spain teaches that that symbol of of an ark in the sky is actually an ancient symbol of a side that wants to show that it is uh, stopping to make war. That it would the 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 side that wants to to make peace would put the arrow, they would put their bow into the sky and re- put their bow upside down, and that's an ancient symbol. Now, according to that, so God was in a sense making war with the earth. God was destroying the earth and shooting arrows down, and so God reversed, as it, you know, in the metaphor, God's arrow. So, two with us, Rabbi, uh, one of, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Chief Rabbi of the British Commonwealth teaches, so there's an implicit opposite arrow that is for us and implicit the second half of the rainbow is for us that we need to take responsibility and not destroy the world ourselves and and if we do that then we really fulfill the covenant that God created with us
1: we're at the end here but I just want to give uh, Reverend Bingham and Reverend Ing uh, any chance for a final word
0: well my final word is that you haven't mentioned my green collar
1: <laughs> oh well that's your uh, I green normally collar.
0: wear a white collar, obviously, um, and most Will you forgive me? clergy do wear white collars, <laughs> but I thought that this was so representational of the work we do. I mean, I'm a green collar worker promoting green collars, and I I took an old one that was kind of ratty and dyed it green, and I think you think I put it in the wash with the dark clothes or something. I'm, it's
1: possible. So please forgive me for Reverend, last word.
2: My last word is that uh, during the Christmas season, we love to sing uh, the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. This year, I became much more conscientious about uh, what the words have to say. And it clearly says that uh, the second verse, especially joy to the earth and heavens and, and the flood, the, the field and floods, uh, all are. Uh, repeating the sounding, uh, noise of joy. Because, uh, God comes into the world not just to redeem human beings, but also, uh, to nature. That's why the, uh, chorus says, heaven and nature sing. And for me, uh, as I, uh, sing that Christmas carol, that's always going to remind me that, uh, it's the whole world that God loves
1: the Nature Sing. Mm-hmm. With that, we'll need to end our guest today at Climate One have been Reverend Donald Eng from the First Chinese Baptist Church in San Francisco, Reverend Sally Bingham, founder of Interfaith Power and Light, and Rabbi Jonathan Nero, founder and executive director of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development in Jerusalem. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming and thank you for listening on the radio.